All right, my guest on the podcast today is um, Elijah Hahn. He is a friend of mine. I have known Elijah since he was a little kid because his dad was my pastor, uh, was the senior pastor of the church where I grew up. So I've had the great pleasure of knowing Elijah for quite a while now. Um, he is now in Korea. He's been Korea, in Korea for the past five years. He is pastoring at Suon Hana Baptist Church, and he does campus ministry at Kyunghee University. So, Elijah, thanks so much for coming on and joining me for this discussion today, brother. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's my honor to be on this podcast. Cool. All right. Well, the reason why I asked you on is because I've been noticing that you have been pretty bold on social media. You've been speaking out pretty strongly lately, and um, some of your threads, yeah, have gotten uh, quite a lot of comments, quite a lot of pushback. Um, but as I was telling you before we started here, um, what I normally see is I see people who kind of get this conviction that they need to speak out, and I see them speak out. And then, you know, they get the avalanche, right? Like mm. all their progressive friends and whatnot hit back at them. And then usually they they shut back down, <laughs> mm. right? I feel like I've right. seen that lots of times with people. Um, but with you, I saw you speak out and then I saw I saw the avalanche come. I saw lots of people start to hit you, um, you know, prover- for proverbially on Facebook and stuff. Um, but then you kept, you were pushing back again and it seems like you're still mm. speaking out strongly. So personally... <clears throat> I, I really love that. I love to see that kind of courage because what it says to me is that there, you're speaking, there's real conviction here and you mm. don't feel like you can be silent on it. So talk to me a little mm. bit about that. Why are you speaking up so much on social media yeah. these days? So um, I think and at the end of the day, it comes down to who do we fear? Do we fear man or do we fear God? And the Bible is clear. Uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And um, for me as a pastor, I have to stand for biblical truth, for biblical values. And the, the Bible is also clear that the world will hate us, that we will be because the world hated Jesus. And, um, and I think we're living in a very perverse and dark time. And so I think in this time, we need the light, we need the salt. And um, but at the same time, um, uh, I just want to share a verse. Can I share a verse? Yeah, of Zechariah. So um, this past year, Mike Bickle did a, um, a Zoom chat with a bunch of house of prayer leaders in Asia and a lot of pastors. And he gave us this command. He said, be a faithful witness of the written word. You know, there's a lot of pastors preaching topical sermons, but he was really saying in these end times, we got to we got to just be a witness of the written word, the sure. written revelation. Yeah. And so in my church and in our campus ministry, we've been going through the Old Testament. And I got inspired by Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to his disciples and he shares to them out of from Moses in all the Old Testament of how this is talking about him. Yeah. And at the end of the day, their hearts were burning. And I started to think, what, what was happening in that Bible study? And, and so I've been on a personal journey preaching out of all the prophecies regarding the Messiah in the Old Testament. And I just want to share Zechariah 12.10 as we start this podcast, because I feel like this is a recent 
revelation that the Holy Spirit was giving me. Mm-hmm. And I think that will help everyone understand why I'm being so vocal on this topic. So Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over her firstborn. And this is connected to Revelation 1-7, when Revelation 1-7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. And I've been getting this understanding that there's going to be two types of mourning. There's two times when we mourn. We mourn when we repent, when we realize who we pierce, when we realize the sin that Jesus took for us. I think true repentance looks like that. You mourn as though you lost your firstborn. And then there's the second time, second morning when Jesus comes. And that's going to be the time when people mourn, but it'll be too late. That's going to be the time of judgment. And so like this revelation came to me regarding when I thought about abortion, Abortion, if you think about it, an innocent child is dying because of someone else's sin. Right. And if that does not bother us, like I was thinking Zechariah 12.10 is showing this, that the way that they will mourn is they will mourn as though they lost their firstborn. And I was thinking about Abraham and Isaac. Imagine the emotions that was going in his heart when... God told him to sacrifice his son. And I was thinking, that is the price. Like, that is what true repentance looks like when, um, yeah, that mourning for sin, that sorrow, that grief. And if you think about John the Baptist, if you think about even Peter, when he preached on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, after he talked about Jesus, whom they crucified, They were cut to the heart, that piercing. They realized, man, Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus took my sin. And then they asked Peter, Peter, what should we do? And Peter said, repent, repent and receive and and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, be saved from this perverse and wicked generation. And as I was meditating on this, I started to realize this is the same message that we as Christians must carry today, the message of repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without taking Jesus as your Lord and Savior, without laying down the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, without letting go of this, there's no salvation. And there's no way we can give all this perversion a free pass. It's like, yeah. And so that's been why it's been so hard on my heart, seeing a lot of Christians becoming progressive, thinking we have to tone down this message in the name of love. And I was thinking, that is not love. I was thinking like, 
man, do we realize how we pierce Jesus? Do we realize, do we have that mourning of over our sin that he really took? And I'm not saying that I'm better than any person. I'm not trying to say I'm holier than you. Only God pronounces me or anyone as holy and righteous. But for us, our sanctification, our living out of the lordship of Jesus, that's on our part. Our faith, that's something we have to work out with fear and trembling. Right. And so I just, I'm just trying to be a faithful witness of Jesus as someone who's repented, as someone who's really trying to keep Jesus as my Lord and Savior and to bring others into that uh, relationship. And I right. think there's a big misunderstanding because we hate the sin. That's what prevents us from walking with Jesus. But a lot of people are looking at it as we're hating the people. And, um, and you, Pastor and Dennis, you posted a really good uh, video on uh, Pastor Vodi, who talked about how homosexuality is not an orientation. And the reason why there's this social justice movement in the name of unity, justice, and love, but I really think at the core, there's some distorted things that are being presented and really some half-truths and distorted truths that are being twisted. Right. In the name of love, in the name of justice. And so that's kind of some of the things that I've been trying to touch on on yep. Facebook. But uh, yeah, yeah, I've been getting a lot of heat for that. Yeah, <laughs> I have been, which is, uh, you yeah. know, which I do too. Um, yeah, it does seem there, it seems like there's this mass effort to redefine these terms, to redefine love and to redefine justice. And that's the big problem here. Because we're working with two sets of definitions, right? So when somebody, you know, I get accused all the time of being, you know, racist and homophobic and, you know, bigoted and whatnot. And that's because from their perspective, I don't fit their definition of love, right? I don't fit their definition of love. And the, the alarming thing to me, I don't mind it when it's unbelievers, okay? I, I expect that. When it's unbelievers, I get it. Their definition of love is going to be different from my definition of love because I'm trying to define love, you know, biblically, right? I yeah. can't define love as something that is incongruent with w the way I see God defining it in the scriptures. But the part that's really difficult these days is I'm, I'm running, I would, just, I would say like this, the outspoken people, the outspoken Christians these days seem to be more people that have a different definition of love now, right? Or a different definition mm. of justice, right? right? Justice seems, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, this thing just happened where Rick Warren, um, who's a pretty famous pastor down here in Southern California, you know, he had a youth pastor of his who had apparently dressed up like an Asian, okay? And, um, you know, I didn't see the video, but the funny thing was in Rick Warren's public apology, he said he didn't see the video, <laughs> Right, he didn't see the video. He just saw a screenshot, and by the screenshot of this, I presumably white youth pastor um, in Asian-looking garb of some sort, he felt like I needed to issue this public apology. Right, and this is not appropriate. This is not what we're about. But to be honest, when I saw that, I was I was a little mad inside. Right, I was a little mm. mad inside. I'm like, what are you doing here? What are you doing mm. now? First of all, I want to say this. 
I think Rick Warren is a phenomenal pastor for the most part. Okay? Everything that I know about him, great pastor, doing lots of really great things. All right? But what he's starting, what he's doing here is he's using a definition of racism that I hate. It's a different Mm. definition. Right? Because my understanding of racism is somebody has to have some aspect of malicious feeling inside there's got to be some type of inner contempt for someone of another race right Mm -hmm. that's how i define racism but the popular definition of racism has been redefined through critical race theory right and one of the core tenets of critical race theory is that essentially only white people can be racist against people of color Okay, you're not worried about people of color's racism towards white people. You're only really focused on white people's racism against people Mm -hmm. of color. And for those who have studied this, that's because the way they define it is it's not just prejudice, it's prejudice plus power, right? So this is a redefinition of racism. So what Rick Warren is doing from my perspective is he's using that definition. Because by that definition, it doesn't matter if this youth pastor is well-meaning. It doesn't matter Mm. if he actually loves Asians, right? And has lots Mm. of Asian friends, which he probably does if you're living in California, right? And you're a Christian. (laughs) Yeah. Right? None of that matters. All that matters is he's doing something that could be perceived as being racist by all those people that have this new definition of racism. And so he's playing by that definition. And now what he's doing is he's throwing his youth pastor under the bus, right? Mm. Because now his youth pastor is guilty. Right, And we needed to do this huge apology on behalf of the church because he did wow. this really bad thing. And that, yeah. that bothers me because I'm like, look, this is, this is like your spiritual son, right? This is like a member of your spiritual family. You're throwing your spiritual son under the bus. Because I would understand if he had a conversation with him afterwards where I said, hey, I saw this. I just want to make sure like you love Asian people and there was no malicious intent, right? <laughs> and if he was like, you know, actually, Pastor Rick, I hate those Asians, right? And I want to make fun <laughs> of them, right? Well, then an apology is appropriate, right? Then, yes, right, bring right. on the apology, but let him apologize, you know? like. Right. But that's we all know that's not what this was about, right? What this right. was was he is embracing this new definition of racism. And this is my mm. problem. When Christian leaders are embracing these new definitions— and my question is, right. is that the biblical definition? Is that how the mm. Bible sees things? Right. And that seems like what we're talking about here, we're trying yeah. to keep a definition of love that fits the way God loves. And the way that he Amen. loves includes judgment, right? It includes yeah. judgment. Like, the fact that God judges sin does not make him unloving, right? Right. But the way that we tell people that if that is unloving, <laughs> how can that be a biblical definition of love? Exactly. I think the most loving thing you can do is say repent. I mean, out of all the words that Jesus could have said, he, he came and he said those very words himself. And I feel like repent when you repent, you have life. When you repent, you get eternal life. Like there is no greater. What is love then? You know, right. doing your lust. Is that love allowing you to live the way you want to live? I don't think that's the right. Right. And so I feel like right now society is trying to redefine 
marriage, trying to redefine the order. Like if you look at feminism, for example, I mean, until 1960s, women really, they lived as, a, you know, they didn't have a voice. And that's just how it was. They were at home taking care of their kids. That was the role of a woman. But now, since the 1960s, they want to be equal as men. But God did not create men and women equal. And, I mean, if you look at um, 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about the order of how God, how God is the head of every man. And the head of every woman is actually a man. Right. And it talks about the order in which God created because, you know, man was created in the image of God and women was created from man. And so it's almost like we're trying to redefine God's design. Even homosexuality is the same way where, you know, God only created sex to be uh, to happen within the confines of a man and women in covenant relationship. But now mm -hmm. we're redefining it to say, oh, no, you can have sex with, you know, whoever you love. Right. Then if we say it that way, then, you know, pedophilia, we have to we have to agree with it because say they love that child. You know, who are we to say that if we're using the same standard for mm -hmm. homosexuality, we have to open the door for pedophilia and other perversion right and let me let me comment on that because a lot of people would push back and say well pedophilia is different because th in that case what you have is you have an older person making the decision but young people don't have the ability to make the decision about who they love something like that but in the same breath many of those same people are arguing that young children have the ability to choose whether to change their genders and to take mm. you know hormones and have sex change surgery when they're young so it's it's a very it, it there's no there's no consistency to the worldview right. here right? right so uh, i i'm with you i think if i think if you embrace the idea that love is love this is what i hear all the time right if you embrace the idea hey if they feel this attraction right then how can that be evil well then what do you do with pedophilia what do you do with that what do you do with people who feel an attraction for young children Okay, is that evil? And, and what you're seeing is that for a lot of people, it's actually, ugh, it's, it's hard to say that now, right? It's like, yeah. well, you know, they're, they're, they see there's something wrong here, but, you know, but yeah, I don't know if I can call it evil, right? And, you, and I've actually seen a number of articles start to come out that are defending pedophilia, right? right. And yeah, that is where it goes if we're being yeah. logically consistent here. And, and I think... Uh, perversion starts when we uh, really go outside of the design of God, when we break out of the order and design that God created. And so right. in, just sex outside of marriage in general is perversion. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not right. right. And it's just another form of masturbation. It's never fulfilling. It's never going to satisfy you. And my whole thing is, is this, is... I feel like right now society is giving a middle finger to God by the way that they're living. For sure. For example, transgender, like changing your, I mean, God created man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, but giving 
them the power to change the image of a man into a woman, I think that's an abomination. I think that's really something that is detrimental to that person. Yeah. To even allow that to happen. I think that's hurting them. And for me to say that now is hate speech. For me to say that now is like, yo, why are you, you know, why are you so against this? But I feel like, you know, I started to think about that. Like one of the people arguing on my Facebook was saying, you know, these are people outside the church. You know, why are you, why are you so harsh on them? And I started to think then, is it the same thing about me standing to be against abortion? Like, I can't say anything because they're outside the church. Do I just let injustice go? Like, (laughs) where's the line? Yeah, these are the same people that are that are flaming mad about Black Lives Matter, right? Black Lives Matter. We have ten unarmed black men being shot by cops a year on average, something like that. Ten, Mm -hmm. okay. Mm And they're flaming mad about it, and they're ready to abolish police departments all across the nation. And we're talking about 800,000 babies that are killed through abortion. Not only that, but how many children grow up now without fathers in broken right. homes and broken families because right. of sexual immorality, right? Exactly. The, the reason that God commands sexual purity is for the protection of children. Right. And anybody with integrity has to admit that since the 1960s, the 1970s, when sexual immorality has exploded in the Western world, what we've also seen is the explosion of fatherlessness. That's exactly what we've seen. The two are linked together. And I challenge anybody who is going to come back against biblical morality and say, oh yeah, that's just archaic thinking, it's just because of those fundamentalist Christians. I'm like, no, what you're doing is you're contributing to so much pain and suffering in the earth from all the children who are growing up in broken families without committed parents because we haven't trained the parents to value commitment because it's all been about me right like what do i want i want to have sex well what are your what about your kids what do your kids want that's what we used to prioritize right we used to prioritize Mm -hmm. not thinking about just yourself what about your family the ones that you're called and responsible to take care of don't you have a responsibility to that right and look, I, so I keep hearing uh, in Korea, you're over there in Korea. I keep hearing in Korea, everybody just wants like one kid. Like that's yeah. the big thing. No more, just one, right? Right. right. And I, I lovingly, okay, I lovingly <laughs> rebuke all those people. Lovingly, okay? Yeah. Yeah. But look, people, people it's treat- so selfish. Yeah, it's people so, treat kids it's... like they're pets, right? <laughs> I, I just want one, you know? Like more than that, it's yeah. like too, um, you know, like they poop too much and you got, you know, like, you know, they're expensive and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah they're really hard, okay? They're harder than a dog. They're harder than a cat, right? <laughs> but they're not pets, right? They're exactly. the next generation. And this is, this, right. it's such short, short-minded um, thinking. This it idea, is. you're just living for yourself. You yeah. know who you know who controls the next generation? Those who have lots of kids and disciples them well. Mm. The next mm. generation is ruled by those who have lots of kids and disciple them well. Europe is right. literally being taken over right now by Muslims. Yeah. Not be- right. the Muslims aren't, you know, literally conquering Europe. They're just having They're lots having of babies lot of kids, and immigrating. Right. And right. they and they teach their children their ways. Yeah. That's how you do it. That, and that's a very biblical mentality, actually. 
right? Yeah. That's actually what we're supposed to do, right? The first <laughs> command in Scripture was actually, mm. you know, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Uh, like, <clears throat> the Jews take that as a command. I think that that's actually right. I think we should consider it <clears throat> our responsibility to have children, because it's not about <clears throat> us. If our mission right. is to disciple the nations, we mm. need to have lots of children and be discipling them well so that they can disciple the nations. But because we've that's lost so the mandate, we've lost that sense of responsibility mm. of something that's bigger than just us, we just think like, oh yeah, how many pets do I want? You know, just one, <laughs> you know? Mm. So that's my problem with this. Like, we need to have a mentality that's outside of what I want. <clears throat> yeah. I think you're touching on <clears throat> something really powerful here. Because <clears throat> when it comes to the next generation, I think that's, if you confuse the next generation, if you teach them a certain, uh, you know, principles of corruption, like you just, yeah, you ruin their lives. You know, I, I feel like we teach values to kids and those values that are taught to them at a certain age, they'll carry that out for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's exactly what you said. If we do not disciple them, they're being discipled by the world. Right. And something I wanted to talk to you about is the perversion that's being taught in the schools. Yeah. And if you look at sex ed right now in Korea, it's crazy what they're teaching. And there's this uh, family therapist that has been studying this, all the sex education that's coming into Korea. And it's all actually from America. And what they're teaching in this sex ed courses is how to masturbate, saying masturbation is fine, it's perfectly normal, and you should try it now. And they're teaching boys how to masturbate girls. And they're teaching vice versa, how to masturbate each other from an age when they don't know what is right and wrong. And if, you know, we as Christians, we only teach sex is okay in the confines of marriage, man and woman. But right. what is being taught is masturbation is okay, it's perfectly normal. But to take that a step further now, they're teaching homosexuality. They're teaching how to have sex from man to man, like how to do that. And they're showing with figures, with toys, how to have sex. And what this is doing is it's training the kids that it's okay to do this. And um, I have a friend in the States, and he was saying that starting from the third grade, they're teaching kids to feel free to write down whatever gender you want to be, whatever gender you want to express yourself in. So if you feel like you're a girl, but you're a boy, you can write down your gender as a female. Yeah. And this confusion that's happening from this, you know, from the kids, I think perversion is being, is the world is discipling the next generation in yeah. perversion, yeah. I feel like. That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's <clears throat> yeah. happening. And my my question to you, Elijah, is where's the <clears throat> outrage in the church? Mm. I, I just feel like we have we <clears throat> have so embraced a definition of love that is not biblical that whenever we see outrage, we assume it's not loving. It's something like that. Because I'm outraged yeah. about this, right? I'm yes. I'm mad about what's <clears throat> happening in the nation. I'm mad yeah. about this. But I, I'll be honest, look, I just um, I, I went through a season where I applied to a number of different churches, and most of them were Korean churches, because I actually have a real heart for the Korean church. But mm. in almost every single one of those interviews, 
I, I specified with them. I said, hey, I have a conviction I need to speak out on some of these controversial issues like abortion, right? Like sexual immorality, like these things. And they didn't want me to do that as a pastor. Wow. They didn't want me to do it. There were several churches where that's like everything else they loved about me, but because I'm determined to speak out about these controversial issues, they're like, mm. no, we don't feel like pastors are supposed to do that. Wow. And, you know, with some of these, the, the, the ironic thing is this. I remember there was one pastor that I talked to, and he was, you know, I was telling them, I was telling him, hey, no, if we don't, if we don't teach the younger generation about these things, the world's going to disciple them. The universities are going right. to disciple them in all these things. And we got into a conversation about his daughter. And he was saying that his daughter hates Trump, just hates him. And I was like, I, I, I understand, <laughs> right? And he's like, and we were, you know how we were on conversation around the dinner table, and she's like, I hate, I hate him. He's like, and, and he was like, well, wow. wait a second, you know, like, he's the president. You still have to honor him. And they got in a little fight over it. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's on you, right? That's your fault because yeah. yeah. you are, you're, Telling the pastors they can't teach them. They can't train right. them on this stuff. So where do you think they're going to get discipled? Exactly. They're going to get discipled in the world's perspective of all of this. Right. And that's that's why it infuriates me. It makes me so yeah. upset that, number one, look, because you, you can tell, if you go to a progressive church, they're all talking about these, these types of things. Yes. They're all talking about BLM and social justice okay but when you go to a conservative church where the senior leaders and elders are conservative you know what it is they're quiet about it they don't talk about it mm. that's generally how it goes right in most mm. of the churches that i've seen and mm. is it is it a surprise to us that all of mm. our young people are essentially becoming progressive and wow. culturally marxist that no it's right. not a surprise to me at all right this is this is the way it's going to happen yeah. And and I ask it, where's the outrage? Where's the church that yeah. is mad? I would I used to tell when I was at my last church, I used to tell, you know, the EM pastor there, I would say, Hey, if if our church, if if just like two or three of the largest churches in the region, if we just got together and we said we're boycotting all the schools until they fix this, right? <laughs> It'd be game over for those schools, man. They'd be like half yeah. empty, right? Yeah. Like we have the weight to do it right now. We just don't have the right. leadership. We don't have right. people that stand up and be like, no, stop this or we're out. Mm. And mm. and if we don't do that soon, we're going to lose it all. Yeah. Because our young people are leaving. Elijah, the reason why I'm surprised right. by you is because most younger Korean-American pastors, my age or younger, the vast mm. majority are pretty progressive now, it seems like, to me. Right. Well, yes. they seem like they're in the middle, Right. Yeah. Like, that's the position I see all the time, right? Mm. They're just like, you know, I, I hate, I, I don't like Trump and I don't like his language, um, but, you know, I don't really feel comfortable voting for abortion. But more of those people than ever before in this last election voted Democrat, right, than I ever mm. saw before. So I feel like they're being pulled over to that mm. side more and more and more. And that's what's yeah. going on right now, man. Yeah, man. Um, I look at second... Corinthians 5.10, and it talks about how we will all appear before the judgment seat and give account. And uh, Dennis, I think what you're doing, you are sounding the alarm. And I think there's people like you, like me, they're there 
but I feel like God is God is up to something. And I think right now, one of the clearest voices on this cultural topic is actually John MacArthur. I think he's very clear on this whole so- social justice yeah, crap yep. that's being accepted in the church. And for me, I think, you know, the culture should never redefine. Like, you know, cult- we live in the culture but we should always redefine our worldview and values and culture by the book. And people will call me fundamentalist for saying that, but I I feel like culture is always evolving, but we should never, yeah, we should never shake on these fundamental things that the Bible speaks. And I think to some degree, God brought me out to Korea to be in the wilderness. You know, I'm, I'm not living in the midst of, a huge LGBTQ community. I'm not living in the midst of that. So I'm kind of out here in Korea, but when I see the news, my heart is breaking. And when I, when I posted my posts on Facebook, I was actually surprised by my, my friends that are pastors that, that messaged me privately saying, Elijah, you got to tone it down. Yeah. And, you know, like, actually, one of them is a close friend. But I was so shocked. In the name of love, we got to lessen our voice on homosexuality. And when he said that, I, I asked him, bro, like, do you lessen your stance on murder to reach out to murders? Do you lessen <laughs> your stance on abortion to reach out to people committing abortion? Like, how how lost have we how how far away have we gone from you know heralding the word of god like is this no longer our standard and yes we love the sinner yes you know but my heart breaks but i feel like people like you dennis and there are people that god will raise up and this is something that i wanted to share on this podcast too but it's You know, we got to start our own schools. We got to start our own. Like, for example, my church, they started a private school in 2009 with four high school kids. And the reason why is because they realized the friends that these kids make in schools. And just like you said, here in Korea, the whole focus is like... Bro, like raising kids in Korea is brutal. Like a lot of kids, they'll be friends with kids that only have the same size house as them. They'll say, hey, how big is your house? How many rooms do you have in your house? And if you don't have, if you don't have five rooms in your house, you can't be my friend. That's so ridiculous. It's so that, ridiculous, bro. That's the world, man. They they yeah. are all about status. What does your dad do? What does your mom do? And the whole status culture of Korea is ingrained in the kids. So imagine, imagine you live in a two-bedroom house with, you know, say you have a family of five. You are no longer able to socialize with that kid that has five, six rooms. And so the pressure that is being given in in society to be rich, to have status, to have a certain career, this is so strong in Korea. Yeah. And to and not only that, just the perversion, you know, uh, living for 
living for money, living for all this, like all these kids, they're trying to work at Samsung and they're trying to work at this, the go to a prestigious school. And that is not our goal as Christians. Our goal is not to be prestigious. Our goal is to be like Christ. And so our church, we started a, a international a school in 2009 to raise up Daniels. And the main curriculum was the word of God to ground them and so every day there's worship and prayer. Every day they study the word. And I think we got to go back to the way Jews did it. They memorized scripture yeah. and they had scripture as their foundation for their value system. And right now the private school has a hundred kids from preschool to high school. And they teach just fundamental, just the word of God. And they try to give the values of the word. And I think, I think the new way forward is we got to be radical like this. We got to take, we got to boycott the schools, like you said, Dennis, and someone has to pay the price to become that teacher, to, to really pave the road for the next generation, to raise up Daniels in the midst of this Babylon spirit that we're living in, in yeah. this culture and this age. And so I just want to encourage uh, just anyone listening, you know, if, if God puts it on your heart, to really stand against this perversion, raise up Daniels, raise up. It's our responsibility. Just like you said, Dennis, you know, we don't live for ourselves. We live to really disciple. We love our children. So we got to do that. We got to pay the price to right. giving them the right biblical values and save them from the perversion of this generation. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I'll just say something because I know that, you know, naturally we're going to get a lot of pushback on this because of the conversation. We're talking about homosexuality. We're talking about transgenderism. Let me just say a couple things to people who are not familiar with some of these statistics, right? In the transgender community, they have a 40% attempted suicide rate. 40% attempted suicide rate, which is, which is an insanely high number, okay? That number does not change at all if you, have, if you change your sex via, through surgery. There's no change, okay? The only other group in the history of the world that has had a suicide rate that high is Jews living in concentration camps wow. in Nazi Germany, all right? The idea, like, that this is, like, because the argument people make is the reason why they're so suicidal is because of mean Christians like you, right? If you just accepted them as they, as they are, wow. right, they'd be fine and happy. And I'm like, you are, you're crazy is what it is, okay? No, these people are suffering. There's a there's a yeah. real affliction here. And what you're doing is you're trying you're legitimizing it. You're trying to say, right. "Hey, no, all we got to do is we got to accept it." And I'm like, "No, they need they need deliverance. They need freedom." Right. Okay? Yes. And look, if you hear the stories cuz I've actually dealt with a lot of people who struggle with same-sex attraction and struggled with gender dysphoria and things like this. If you hear their stories, if you really get into the community, you can hear a lot of these people have stories of serious abuse, all right? Yeah. And what we're doing is we're normalizing, we're saying, "No, no, it's healthy, it's good." I'm like, "Come on, if you're familiar with me, you know so many people have testimonies where they've been abused." And yeah. I, I was just listening to um, a podcast today, Red Pilled America. Have you heard this podcast? It's no. actually, it's phenomenal. It's really well produced, but they, they do a great job. What they do is they tell stories. They're telling the story um, of transgenderism in America and kind of how it was started back in you know the 60s and 70s, this movement, John Hopkins. There was a, 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 a I think it was a professor there, but they started a clinic for um, 
you know, for sex change surgery and stuff like that. And wow. one of the first, you know, first people that they did this surgery on, they were twin boys. And what happened is one of the boys had been um, had been hurt in the circumcision process, and basically his his penis was damaged, right? And so they um, they decided his parents decided to have him get this this surgery as a baby and to raise him as a girl because the oh because the John Hopkins um, dude was basically telling him telling them yeah like if we raise him as a girl he'll 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 grow up as a girl and was they try and do this this kid is just tormented, is just tormented by this, right? It, I was listening to this, I was crying in my car listening to his story. It was so sad. Both him and his brother end up committing suicide later on in life. They try and raise him as oh. a girl for most, of, for most of his life. Eventually, his parents tell him what happened. He realizes, no, he's actually a biological male, right? Yeah. And but he's so tormented through all this. It's the saddest story ever. That's and, terrible. And the agenda of this doctor pushing for it, you know, it's it's so disgusting. And I see this all the time. I see this all the time. There is clearly a link between homosexuality and a predatory type of behavior. This is the problem. Yeah. It's like we're not allowed to talk about this. Right? Mm. It's like you can't talk about it. No, you can't talk about it. This weird thing, how, how older men tend to be attracted to younger men a lot of times when they're homosexual. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying it happens a lot. Okay, it happens a lot. And it's like we're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to investigate it. I, I Elijah, I looked into this about 10 years ago. I saw numerous I found numerous studies where they showed that there was a link between those who identified as gay or bisexual and um and molestation, being sexually abused and molested. And I saw three different studies, right, where there was a link. They clearly showed in the data there was a link. I looked again about five, four or five years ago. All those studies had been scrubbed from the internet. It was insane. Wow. All my old links, they didn't, they didn't, they went to nothing. Those pages were dead now, right? The wow. only, and then all there was, there were just links to research done at like UC Santa Cruz or something like that, or Davis. I can't remember. It was one of the UCs. And they basically said, that, no, there's no link at all. All of our studies show there's no link. I don't trust, I don't trust them at all. I don't trust them at all because I've right. actually talked with many people in the community. I've tried to disciple. At, my, at the church that we planted in Berkeley, we probably like a quarter of our students struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay. Wow. And we, you know, I, 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 I walked in life with them. I talked with them, right? And a lot of them have really painful stories. Yeah. And like, here's UC Santa Cruz or Davis saying, oh, no, there's no link at all. And I'm like, I'm like, come on, you guys are freaking liars, okay? I say yeah. that about any of these, any of these ethnic studies departments, gender studies departments, sociology departments, they all have agendas. That's the issue. Yeah. They have strong yeah. agendas, and I don't trust them at all. They're like the national media, right? I don't trust the national media. There's so many agendas. They don't like telling the objective truth is not is not their priority. And so I simply say this as we're talking about this because this is what I hear all the time from people. Oh, you just hate these sins. I'm like, no, actually, that's not true, right? I actually do care about all of these different sins. I preach about them all the time. I preach repentance on all of these yeah. different things. But these are the things that if I talk about, I get pushback from other so-called Christians like you. And you tell mm. me I should not be talking about these. I don't get that with these other ones, right? If I preach on mm. theft and how you need to repent and restore what you stole, I don't have a bunch of 
Christians telling me you're not being loving, you know, for the thieves in our right, in our right. community, right? But no, this is the one where I get pushback. This is where mm. the battle is. And yeah. and it's a real battle, man. We're in it this is. thing. It is. And you know, I have friends that are that are homosexual and a lot of them do come from a history of molest, you know, getting molested when they're young and I think that really confuses a child and I think the struggle is real just like any man would struggle with pornography you know I think there is a struggle there is this sure. attraction that they can't deny and I mean my heart is not to push them away for sure but we have to make it clear that this if we act on it it's just detrimental to us just like pornography is detrimental just like any sin is detrimental and I think the, the stance that we I just really want to hit home is everyone struggles with something. And yeah. it's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And until we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have to deny ourselves daily. That's the call of, you know, that's what true repentance is, is I let go of this desire that I have. Right. And I think, yeah, at the end of the day, like there are people that do struggle, but when we allow such perversion, there's just going to be more people that struggle with brokenness, that struggle with perversion. And like you said, <clears throat> like uh, the whole pedophilia thing is crazy. It's crazy. If we really look at and the transgender statistic for uh, suicide. I think, you know, at the end, when they when you allow sinners to keep going in their sin, there is no fulfillment. Right. Like I, I tell I told my gay friend, when you're old, I'm telling you, you're not going to be happy if you keep living in this lifestyle. Only your own. You're looking for something to satisfy you. That's what you're doing by living in this lifestyle. But you will never be satisfied in your sin. Right. And, but, you know, that friend ended up not being Christian anymore because he wanted that lifestyle more than he wanted to follow Christ. Right. And I think, you know, our stance on homosexuality is our stance on any sin in general. If someone keeps murdering, that's going to ruin your life. You're not going to be happy. Sure. If you keep stealing and cheating, that's going to ruin your life. You're not going to be happy. Right. And I mean... I think there's this wrong twist that the world is thinking Christians have towards homosexuality, but it's, I mean, we are just trying to live by the book. We're right. trying to, we're trying to help people live in his God's design, right. but it's being twisted and taken the wrong way for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, we're praying for a breakthrough here. I, I've worked with so many people who struggle with same-sex attraction. So I just want to say up front, I know we're talking about it, this is, in my experience, this is what it is. It seems like there is a root of rejection from a same-sex parent a lot of times. A lot of times, that seems to be the open door mm. for a lot of people. They, they, they face mm. some type of rejection from a same-sex parent. Oftentimes, what that, that seed is then sensed and exploited by some type of abuser. Okay, Now, wow. this is I, we're talking principles here, so there's always going to be exceptions. Okay, right. It's the same thing that if you have an alcoholic father, right, a surprising number of young women with alcoholic fathers grow up and get attracted to alcoholic men. 
All right, it's the same kind of thing because all of us have this natural craving, this need for the acceptance and the affection and the love of our parents. We've been designed that way. So when we don't get that or when we get a, 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 an abusive version of that, right, we still crave the real thing. So I simply mm. say this, people you know, who are in this place, because so many people, we struggle with this. And it's, of course we have compassion on it, right? Yeah. Of course we have compassion. All of us are struggling with our sinful desires, our wrong desires, okay? That's right. everybody. What I've found with people who struggle with same-sex attraction is that men are very prone to feeling rejected. All right, mm. they're very prone. That's why it's very difficult to hear, "Hey, th this is sin." I'm not saying I reject you. No, right. I accept you. But this right. behavior is sinful, and that's right. that's the trick of this whole gay pride thing. Because what you yes. do when you come out of the closet, you make are making a decision to identify with the sin. Right. It's not like this is something exactly. I struggle with. Right. This is not because. We all have stuff we struggle with, okay? I like yeah. to eat too many donuts, all right? Like, <laughs> I ate too many donuts today, all right? Like, that's a, that's a struggle, and I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just saying all of us have real struggles with bad desires. Yeah. But once right. I identify with it, once I say, no, that's not something I struggle with, that's who I am. Who I am. Now, that's... there's no way, there's no way to right. say this is evil without rejecting you. But you're exactly. the one who I chose to identify with. I don't identify you with it, okay? Right. To exactly. me, you're just a dude or a woman who struggles <laughs> with something like all people do. But once you right. identify with it and say, no, this is who I am, and then you feel rejected by me, who whose fault is that? Because exactly. the world keeps telling me it's my fault. It's exactly. my fault that you feel rejected. But I lovingly say, no, it's your fault, okay, because I don't reject yeah. you. I have no right. problems being friends with people who identify as gay I don't feel the need to go and rebuke them all the time, especially if they're not Christian, right? No, of course not. Right. I don't need to rebuke them all the right. time, okay? <laughs> Elijah, I don't think I've, I, I, personally, I have never mm. met a Christian who hates gay people in my mm. life, okay? I know they're out there, okay? I know they're out there. <laughs> I've just never met one, okay? Right. And yet, all the time, there is this accusation against Christians that they are unloving to the gay community. And I'm like, no, I've, I've not seen it. Are they out there? Yeah. I'm sure they are. But generally speaking, that is not true. And in fact, it's, yeah. it's the shame of that accusation. This is what I'm getting at. The fact that so many Christians have believed that accusation. Right. Because once you believe that accusation, oh yeah, we have been unloving. Well, how have we been unloving? Be mm. Like, yeah. did you like... Did you go and make fun of a gay person, right? Did you go and like throw one in a trash can or something? Like, did you bully one? Or if you did, then yes, repent for that, all right? But right. if you didn't do any of those things, how have you How have you or Christians even been unloving? And usually it comes right. down to, oh, I said something publicly that offended or hurt somebody. And if you hold that as your standard, well, now you're put in a place where you have to repent of speaking the truth in love. Yeah. Right, which is wow. you're actually commanded to do by God. And now you're repenting right. of it. And then you go to the next length where you're like, now you're telling other Christians they need to repent of speaking the truth in wow. love. But you're the one who's disobeying the Lord. You're yeah. the one who is is not doing what you're commanded to do in Scripture. And that's yeah. what we have. And I wouldn't mind if it was a handful, but it's so many right now, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you touched on something really good, you know, that homosexuality is not who they are that that's a deception that's in this culture 
like the whole orientation like i can't change the fact that i'm asian i can't change the fact that i'm a man and people that say i was born gay i think that's a big deception like no one was born to do that certain type of sin they were taught it something like you know i feel like that deception to say i was born this way therefore you have to accept me and you know we buy into that as that's why a lot of christians say we can't speak on it because that's their identity but i think you know like there's homosexuals that turn straight and you know there's homosexual you can't i you can't do an autopsy on a ho- sure. on a homosexual and find a homosexual gene or dna there's right. nothing of that so there's no right. we can't define homosexuality as an identity or orientation right but once we do that then it becomes discrimination you know and that's why now we can't talk against it because now we're against the identity but right we're we never agree that this sin is an identity. Right. So I exactly. think you're you're really touching on a very powerful point there. Exactly, man. I mean, this is really such an area of there's there's so much need for understanding in this area. Because you touched on a couple things that I think we should explore a little bit more. This idea number one that you you don't have the authority to speak on something unless you have lived experience in it. Okay? That there's a degree of truth to this. Meaning if I have overcome a certain issue in my life, I think I do, I am able to speak with a greater authority on it, okay? So there are things that I've conquered in my own character, and I think I am mm. able to speak with a greater authority on that. And absolutely, the people when, you know, we do, um, you know, sexual purity conferences, I want to I have somebody sharing who has personally overcome many of those things. So there's, there is a degree of truth in this. But this idea that those who have not had lived experience have no authority to speak on it, I just simply don't think that's true, okay? I don't think that's true in in, in anything, right? A lot of people tell me I can't speak about race issues in America because I'm not black, right? No, no, no. That's not true, okay? I I reject that entire mindset, right? right? I reject that entire mindset. It's not that there isn't a degree of truth there, okay? There is a degree Mm. of truth in the sense that if I've lived through a type of persecution or a type of suffering, I do have an experience and I can speak from that experience. There's some truth in that. But there's also the truth that if I'm hurt, if I'm carrying wounds from wrongs that have been done to me and I'm carrying them with me, a lot of times that's going to skew my vision also, right? Exactly. That's a real That's a real thing. Like I, I, I put it to like this. If we have a situation where a mom got, you know, in a car accident from a drunk driver and, you know, and her baby got killed in the back seat. Okay, at the trial, we don't let her be the judge. Right? right? If we let her be exactly. the judge, okay, that guy's going to be guilty no matter what. Okay? Well, in this case I said he was a drunk driver. I guess I should just say any driver, right? We don't let people who are personally wounded and offended be the judge. That's not healthy. Do they have a good, an important perspective to add? Of course they do, all right? But this idea that they are the, the most authoritative, they're the ones who should be speaking. This idea that, you know, the only people that we should let speak on race, right, are the, you know, black, female, transgender, you know, <laughs> people who have, have been abused in their childhood, right? Of course not, right? Do they have an important right. perspective? Of course. They they deserve a, a place at the table. But once we're seeing it through the ID, I, the lens of identity politics, it actually blend, right. it blinds us so much more. So I say that exactly. up front. When we're talking about these issues, 
look, we have to be able to speak into these issues as church leaders, okay? Yeah. And I just want to say this for a lot of churches, because a lot of churches are like, well, look, I don't struggle with that, so I don't feel like I can speak out on this. I'm like, look, I get a bit where you're coming from, but you have a responsibility to speak out on it right now. Right. We all have an obligation because this is lying for every one of us. All of mm. our, especially young people, are getting persecuted in their businesses, in their schools, right? If they're an evangelical Christian, they're almost certainly facing some degree of persecution. I had one of my students, he um, had to take class. It was a mandatory class at his university. And the, the paper for his class, the main paper for the class, was you need to write a paper on how evangelical Christians are persecuting the gay community in America. And I, I told him, you know what you should do? You should write a paper about how the gay community is persecuting evangelical Christians in America, and you should use this paper topic as a point wow. of evidence in it because there's far more evidence for that than the other way yeah. around, right? But yes. that's how it is. So if we as leaders, if we say, hey, I can't speak into this, you know, uh, then what's what's going to happen? We leave our people defenseless, right? right? They've got to try and defend, and that's the problem. So many believers, they don't know. They don't know enough mm. about abortion to speak out on it. They don't know enough about homosexuality to speak out on it. And that's precisely because we as leaders, we actually have to be training them in all of these things, which is why exactly. it's doubly frustrating, right, when our churches don't want us to be teaching our right. students about all these different things. Yeah. And, you know, just to add, um, the, there was one moment in my life when I fully devoted my life to being a servant of God. And what happened was I was traumatized by someone dying right in front of me. Uh, it was a Friday, Friday afternoon, and I was just driving down a street and this guy was in a motorcycle. And he zoomed right past us, and he ended up hitting a car, cracking his head, and dying on the spot. Wow. And that, that happened to be uh, one of our church members' older brother who just got back from Afghanistan fighting a war. And he died in America in a freak accident on a motorcycle. And that was the moment, that was the turning moment for me. What kind of urgency am I living in? Do I think that I will have years? Do I think that I will live 20 more years or 30 more years? Many people think that way. They think they're going to be living until, you know, no one, no one thought the coronavirus would hit. We never thought this pandemic would happen. We never thought this many deaths would happen. But I just want to challenge all the listeners to realize, to live in this urgency. We don't know when we will meet God face to face. We might, we might all die today. We might all die tomorrow. Yeah. And I think for Christians, we really have to stand and speak the truth. And it is loving to say, repent. It is loving to say, your lifestyle is detrimental to your future. It's detrimental to your health. Yeah. And I think just like you're saying, we have to be able to disciple our church in this. If we don't, we're going to adjust the Bible to match the culture, just like the progressive church is doing right now. Yeah, absolutely, man. Elijah, I want to ask you also about the Korean church. Um, I, I had an experience a couple years ago where the Lord um, spoke to me and said that this upcoming generation of Korean-American leaders— in the church are despising their inheritance. 
And when I heard that, I didn't know exactly what it meant, to be honest. I was just like, okay, Lord, what does that mean? And so I set about really praying about it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I felt strongly was this idea that, you know, this upcoming generation, like we don't honor a lot of the things of the previous generations. And one of the big things is like prayer, right? Like mm. our grandparents, I'm speaking from my Korean side because I'm half Korean, our grandparents, right? They all came to morning prayer. I don't know about it all, but yeah. you know, a lot of them, right? If you go to morning prayer these days at Korean churches, it's still all the grandparents, you know? It's like most of the grandparents. And generally speaking, the young, the young people don't go, right? The young, the younger crowd, they're not really there. And I know Grace, you know, your home church is a little better at that than I think than most churches, but most of the churches that I've seen, it just doesn't seem like this younger generation has that same heart for prayer, that same heart for missions. It seems like they've lost a lot of that heart. I want to ask you, as as a, a younger leader in the Korean American church, where do you think where do you think it's going? Yeah, so I think there's definitely uh, when people get comfortable, it kills their spirituality. When you, you get when you get money, when you get fame, when you get riches, you get comfortable. And so I think we have to continually live a lifestyle of fasting. And um, uh, just to just to add, um, there was a pastor that told me a lot of the old pastors, like this is the old generation pastors. You know what they would say? They would say. Uh, they would talk about the time when Korea was invaded and there was national fighters, people that would fight on behalf of Korea. And there was a saying that these national fighters would say. They said, you cannot be a national fighter and a good father. And let me just clarify this point. But they were saying to be a good father, you have to stay with your family. You have to, you know, be there. But to be a national fighter, you have to go wherever your nation needs you to go, and you gotta die. You gotta lay your life down. And this pastor was saying that a lot of pastors they lived their faith in this way, where they they had, and I mean this could be a bad thing too because there's a lot of PKs that are messed up because their dads spent more time praying and you know. Like even, even I, I mean, I could go into my story too, but my dad was really committed to the church. He would do overnight prayer for, for in Calvary Church. He did it for 10 years overnight and then would do morning prayer right after. And that's how much sacrifice and commitment he's given to the kingdom of God, to the work of the Lord. And I think there's this um, new generation of pastors who really prioritize family. And I think that's healthy too. That's, but then many times too, it's also a reaction. You know, I never, my dad never did this for me. So I want to, so like there's pain, there's people that are wounded by their fathers who, you know, like there's this famous rapper in Atlanta and he, I mean, his Instagram is really like terrible. Like he, he, he's at a strip club, like throwing all this money and he's a PK and I was like thinking how much like, you know, that like he was, he has a post on his Instagram talking about his dad being a committed Christian who never spent time with him. And, you know, there's this, 
you know, there's both good and bad. Like there's genuine like PKs that are hurting because their their dad spent more time praying than they did on the weekend playing ball with their kids. But I feel like the you know, a lot of Koreans too, they come like with the war, with poverty, they come from this place of really having nothing but God yeah. and giving themselves to real fasting and praying and commitment to the word of God. And I look at my dad every morning, he's kneeling before the cross. And my dad said this, this is my Sabbath being in the word, being in the presence, praying. And for me, like growing up, I, you know, I had pain too, like, you know, like on a Saturday, I would go play with my friends and they would be playing with their dads. And then one of the dads said to me, yeah, you, you know, how come you don't play with your dad? And that was such a foreign thing, like playing with my dad. I've never played <laughs> with him before. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that was such a, I've never thought of playing with my dad. That was never an option. And growing up, like my grandma raised us and my dad was always, you know, uh, and, but looking back, I see how committed my dad was. And, you know, there's, I think there's two perspectives. There's people that say, you know, my dad didn't love me. They'll, they'll look at that and, and, and interpret it that way. But for me, I think my dad was the greatest role model of what it means to lay your life down for the sake of Christ, really to serve the kingdom of God and to preach the gospel. Yeah. And like my dad is still one of my greatest role models. Till this day, he did not waver on preaching the word, praying the word, praying for people, praying for real salvation of souls. And I look at that as a great inheritance and I mean, for me, I play with my kids, you know, like there's, I'm not yeah. like that in my, yeah. you know, where I'm going to be at church doing overnight prayer and leaving my wife with my two kids. But to some degree, I feel like there's a lot we can learn sure. from that, that Korean heritage. They come from like my dad grew up without a dad, you know, uh, his dad passed away when he was in junior high. And so my dad, in essence, he did not have a father when he was my age. And so I'm sure there's some gaps that he doesn't know what to do or how to, you know, yeah, to father. But I feel like there's still like what the old generation, their Christianity, like, you know, there's this. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but back in the day in Korea, they used to have a curfew uh, from I think it was like. I don't know if it was 9 or 10 p.m., but until the next day, there was a curfew where no one could be out. And a lot of the seminary students at that time, they would go up to the mountain and they would hold onto the tree all night. And this is what they would call mountain prayer. And they, until they would literally break the tree, like uproot the tree the next morning, they would not go down. And this is the type of real prayer that this old generation Koreans lived out. I mean, right now you go to seminaries, the prayer room is really nice. The seats are very comfortable. People used to pray on their knees. They used to have callus on their knees. And I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, spiritually 
regarding a lifestyle. I think we got to go back to that simple lifestyle. I think, you know, media, all this luxury, this stuff that we have, it's all distractions. In my opinion, like there are a lot of distractions that this generation is facing. Like now we can broadcast what we're doing on Instagram and on, on Facebook. But back in the day, it was just you and God, you know, and we wouldn't post, hey, look at me, I'm praying. You know, we wouldn't post that, you know what <laughs> yeah. I'm saying? And I, I feel like we got to go back to that. <laughs> that, that, yeah. that real sincere heart for God, we got to go back to that uh that fasted lifestyle yeah yeah and i I think i'm kind of rambling here but no just just to give a point like i feel like we got to simplify our lives got to break certain distractions that might be holding us from going into the word so i feel like if there's two things that we got to learn is really being a person of the word and really being a person of prayer from the older generation i think there's those are two things like my grandma to this day She's reading the Bible like four or five hours a day. What a beast. Holy and, cow. And I, I, I think we spend easily four to five hours on YouTube, on social media. This generation, we're spending those hours on other things, you know. And I feel like, you know, if we really want to be committed as Christians, as followers of Christ, we got to devote time and hours in the word and in prayer. And that's our only solution to teaching the next generation. If we're not modeling this, I think like even right now, my, my daughter, when she worships, when I'm singing, she lifts up her hands. Yeah. You know, she's like two years old and she's lifting up her hands and saying, amen. Mm-hmm. And my cousin, my cousin who is a believer, but he saw that and was like, what the heck? It's like my two-year-old never would lift up their hands and worship. Like, what is your, what are you teaching your two-year-old? And my daughter, like, even to this day, when we're praying, she'll pray in tongues. She'll hold hands. And I, I realized this, like, even our two-year-old kids, they model after us what we do. And so what we do in the home is so important. And so every day, like, I tell my daughter, Cadence, what is the most important thing for every human being? And I tell her to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the most important thing in our lives. I tell her this every day without, without fail. Every morning and night, I try to help her understand why we live. We live to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think this is how we disciple our kids. If you look at Deuteronomy, it says that whether you leave your house, whether you lie down, wrap the truth around your neck, teach it to your children, and it will be well with them. And So I think I'm just trying to model what I saw in my dad and my grandma to my daughter and to my son. And I think there's... Real, I mean, there's probably things that I wouldn't model from my parents, but there are really certain things that I think we need to catch and hold on to, which is that spirituality, giving your life completely to this one thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. I think, um, you know, at my, um, at the last church I was at, um, 
I remember feeling like this because I would go to, I would go to morning prayer there, you know, um, but the style was so different. You know, they just turned on like music and then they would all just pray, you know, and that's fine. I can do that, you know, but I love um, I love the house of prayer expression of, of mm. prayer and worship together. Right. I think prophetic prayer and worship together is so much better. <laughs> you know, like I think it's so much better. It's so much more enjoyable, I feel like, right? <laughs> and um and it's powerful. It's more powerful and all that. So I simply say this, like I look at kind of that movement in prayer and worship and how um how amazing that is. And I just feel like the potential for this next generation of where we can go to in the place of prayer. Because I feel, I almost feel like our old, you know, our grandparents' generation, or our parents' generation, like they had this great discipline of prayer, yeah. right? And it's it's in truly incredible. It's truly incredible, the discipline that they have. And, you know, I, I always joke, um, you know, when I'm around, you know, that first generation culture, you know, it's very much just like, hey, shut up. And pray, right? You know, it's like, don't talk back, <laughs> don't question, get on your knees and pray. And it's very like, it's it's just that appeal to duty, you know. Yeah. And um, and look, there's something really powerful about that, right? And and as you described, there's also a lot of pain with that, right? I know a lot of people right. that you know just were hurt by that constant appeal to duty and feeling so. Yeah constricted by it and things like that and so i understand and what i try and do is i try and honor the good and i try and recognize the weakness so that i can i can fix that aspect you know but i mean i just feel like in this next generation if we can do it if we can have like that prayer and worship expression in like trained and embraced in the church and done really well man i just feel like we can have an even greater expression of prayer than our forefathers i really believe that's possible i believe it's possible to have us to have a greater prayer anointing than than our forefathers mm. even though you know i don't think we can match their discipline <laughs> just being blunt i don't think we can match their discipline their discipline was so amazing right. but I just feel like this is one of the great blessings of this generation, like that we get to experience worship in a way that is, it, it just, it seems like it's at another level, right? It's at another level. And just that, that, you know, synergy of prayer and worship of harp and bowl, right? Of being able, and it just how it unlocks like the prophetic, like my, my yeah. prayers, I can feel the prophetic anointing on them, right? When the worship mm. is, you know, when the worship is awesome and all this kind of stuff. And so I simply say, like, I'm so hopeful for what we can potentially build, but it just seems like it. we're not there yet. You know what I mean? Like, mm. you see isolated places, you know, you see, like, IHOP, you know, they're doing it, and it seems pretty cool. And then, you know, like, Upper Room, you see, like, and they've got some great, you know, worship stuff going on. But I just feel like, as, a, as you know, I'm burdened for the Korean-American church a lot, and I'm like, mm. I, I don't see that operating in a real mature way yet. You know, I feel like we're trying to get there and I see glimpses of it here and there, but I'm actually so hopeful that if we can train up, you know, a generation where we have mature intercessors, mature worship leaders, that we can get a culture of even greater prayer than our forefathers. Sure. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not under the illusion that it's that it'll be easy to get there, but I definitely think it's possible, man. And I'm, I, I just feel like I have this dream in my heart, like we can, we can do this, you know, we can do yeah. this. It's just... Man, it's just, there's always different things getting in the way, bro. Yeah. 
You know, and Dennis, I think you're talking about the tabernacle of David. You yeah. know, it was constant music with prayer. And it's in that place that revelation is poured out. And I think for David, like he realized this is the first thing I'm going to do when I get like, you know, he he brings all the Levites back who were Saul, King Saul. He felt like I have no use for you, Levites. So he Saul spread out all the Levites to to the countryside. But David, the first thing he does is he brings all the Levites back and says, I'm going to pay you your salary you do this, sing, and he would make instruments. This is how crazy obsessive David was. He made his own instruments. He sang his own songs. And I feel like people who love God, people who are obsessed with God, they will make that. They will do whatever it takes to sustain the presence of God. And I feel like, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, you know, we live in an amazing time where worship, the worship, the worship that we have right now, it's amazing. Like the, the electronic, you know, we don't, we didn't have all this gear that, you know, back in the day, it was just like a guitar and yeah. you know, like, you know, janky, I feel like janky guitar, dude. <laughs> yeah. The ovation, yeah. right? The ovation guitars. And but now we got like so many different expressions that we can use. And, and I, I totally agree with you. And I feel like, you know, if you look at Joel's prophecy, Acts chapter two, Zechariah 12, God is going to pour out his spirit and there's going to be the spirit of prophecy and which is the testimony of Jesus. That's how Jesus is going to be made famous. And I feel like the great commission is filled by the great, great commandment. You know, when you love God, when you truly love him, you will, you will be his voice. And that's why I feel like, you know, every evangelist, they are a worshiper at heart. They, they are sustained by worship. They are sustained by, by that. And so I, I see you as that, Dennis, like you have a heart for God. That's why you are speaking on his behalf. And I, and I want to go back to that point of, you know, even Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy, he says, I, I set my eyes on the prize. And I, I know that he's going to give me this crown and not just me, but all those who longed for his appearing. And if we truly love him, we will realize it. The fear of man, the opinion of man really does not matter at the end of the day. Yeah. When I stand before him, I'm going to give account. How faithful was I to this word? Yeah. Was I a faithful witness or was I just, you know, yeah. tickling the ears and of man, giving them what they wanted to hear? Yeah. And I think, I think we're living in a generation where John the Baptist, people like Elijah will rise up against the spirit of Jezebel, against the spirit of Babylon that's influenced, you know, culture. Yeah. I'm with you, bro. I just feel like right now, I feel like we're in the midst of a testing, of a pruning in the church. And mm. I feel like that's why it, we're being tested right now in so many different ways. One of the big tests, I think, is what we talked about. Like, will we stand on the Word of God? Will we stand against some of these, you know, this movement to, you know, to uh, malign 
the word of God and in just like the fear of the Lord and some of the stuff that we've been talking about, I feel like this is a test for the church. Will we yeah. honor our inheritance, right? Wow. Like, will we, will we value, like, this is something that I felt challenged by, you know, after I graduated from um, college, I moved back down to San Diego and the EM pastor at Calvary actually came up to me at that time. And he, and he wanted me to be the youth pastor at Calvary. And, and I remember I was like, oh, you know, thanks, but I don't, I don't think I'm interested in that. And he was like, well, wait a second, like, we're your home church. Like, you owe me, right? You owe us, right? He's <laughs> like, you owe us, right? We're your home church. And I remember, like, this EM pastor was new. I didn't even know this guy, right? I was like, <laughs> I, remember I got a little mad, right? I was like, I don't know you, right? I don't owe you anything, right? <laughs> like, um, but, you know, so I spent a good amount of time outside of the Korean church, but then, like, I felt like the Lord told me to, you know, come back into the Korean church. And during these last, you know, seven, you know, years that I've been more in the Korean church, I've actually grown such a deep appreciation and love for it. You know, and it's not because I don't see all the weaknesses. I see the weaknesses really clearly, I think, right? It's just I see the strengths so much more clearly now, right? And I think this has been a test for me, right, to honor the inheritance. Because, look, I was shaped by this. Like, I would not be the person that I was except for a lot of those, um, you know, like our, my youth pastor and the teachers, right, that really poured into my life when I was a young man in the Lord, right? They really made such a great impression on me and really helped form me in the Lord. And so this is this is my inheritance, right? Mm -hmm. And it was passed down. And I've just felt this burden like to to honor this inheritance, right, and to love it. And that's why I have this burden for the Korean church. I want to see it um, transition into the next generation. And mm -hmm. I, I just feel like this is like, like, I just feel like every Korean church right now is wrestling with this, at least here in America, right? Because they all recognize that immigration is kind of down from Korea. And what they've seen is they've seen EMs, English ministries, that have grown up, but then break off and leave. Yeah. And they're all wrestling with how do we do this transition? How do we do this? You know, I'm not saying I have like the answer. I don't know what the answer is in terms of, you know, how to do that transition well. But I would simply say this for, you know, our our young Korean American generation that's growing up. I just want to say I just feel like there's this need to honor and love the older generation to receive this Amen. inheritance. I just think there's something on this where we need to contend for a double portion inheritance where Amen. we're carrying the values that they had with us. We're not despising them, but we're grabbing hold of them and saying we're not going to let these go. Like we're yeah. not going to let the value for prayer and for mission go. Right? We're not going to yeah. let the value for duty and discipline go. We're going to hold on these and champion them into the next generation. Right, and we're not just going to abandon the Korean church. We're not just going to go and create, you know, multi-ethnic, you know, churches and and have nothing to do right with the Korean. Church. I I just don't think there's something there that doesn't seem right to me. There's something mm -hmm. where no, we've got to figure out how do we do it alongside? How do we do it alongside mm -hmm. in a way that honors and yeah. carries them with us? Like, because look. I don't. I don't want a lot of older, um, you know, uh, older people who've been praying and saying scripture their whole life, and they've got no one to pour into. Mm. Right? They've got no one to disciple. Right? These are maybe like the treasures of the church. Right? These are people who have been contending right with the Lord. Those they should be discipling younger people. And we're in a fatherless generation where so many young people are wow. longing for spiritual yeah. fathers and mothers. And it just seems like there's this barrier for whatever reason 
where we've got these young people that are longing for spiritual fathers and mothers. We have all these spiritual fathers and mothers that don't know how to pour into the next generation. Don't there's yeah. it's not happening in a way that it should. So I don't know. I, I don't have any answers here. All I have is like, like I just feel like this needs to happen. This needs to yeah. happen where we are holding and, and valuing that inheritance and carrying it mm. in to the next generation. I feel really burdened for this, right? That's so good. And, you know, Elijah, I just want to say I, I see you as somebody who is is carrying the same heart, right, and that mm. same longing. And, look, you know, I never knew your dad personally, okay? Like, my my mom loves your dad, okay? <laughs> my mom loves your dad. Um, I never knew your dad personally, but I can see, right, his heart through you and your brother Sam, right, and through um, you know, through a, a, whenever I'm around GMI and their heart and everything, like I just I feel such a, a gratitude and an honor, right, for what you you and your father and that entire generation of leaders has done, right. We would not be where we are right now if it wasn't for their sacrifice and their you know their determination, right, to pour into this generation. Like when you go wow. to like UCs. Half the Christians are Korean, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's not a coincidence, right? You go to any of these mm. universities, like half the Christians on campus are Korean. It seems like, I don't know if that's statistically mm. perfectly true, but there's, a, a, there we owe them a great debt, right? Yeah. And I just want to yeah. speak to, you know, this generation of, of upcoming, you know, young people. Let's honor them. Let's honor, yeah. you know, our That's roots. Good. And I say this, you know, obviously we have people who are not Korean. Listen to this. Let's honor our roots wherever we're coming from because there is there is something about this where yeah. if we honor them and, and, and carry their inheritance, I, I, I truly think God is testing the entire church right now. This is the moment we're in. I think we're going to see a real transformation of the church. I think it's happening right now with all the COVID stuff. Yeah. I think th yeah. there's a shift that's happening. It's a wineskin that God has been preparing. And I just mm. sense that he, he's preparing this wineskin. And I just want to encourage mm. the younger leaders right now, like go hard after God, abandon Abandon this thing where you want to be like a mega church pastor yes. and have like the biggest Instagram account and all yes. this garbage. Abandon all that garbage, okay? Yeah. I'm telling you, that's part of the old wineskin that's falling away. All right? right? That's, you know, that's not all the old kind, but that was a lot of the weaknesses of the old wineskin, okay? Don't fall into that garbage, okay? God is looking for leaders that show uh, that they fear him more than man yeah. and that they're devoted to him in his ways. They're devoted to seeking him in the secret place and not just in public and not just where people can see, right? And I just feel like there's going to be an outpouring that's coming. And this is a time of Amen. preparation. So I just want to speak to everyone right now. Get in. Yeah. We need the houses of prayer to get yes. back open and to be training up intercessors and worshipers because there's this thing where we're creating a a, a, a wineskin, a place to hold an outpouring of the Spirit. I just want to say, Man. this is the time. Don't be discouraged by the things that you see around that are going on in our culture. Don't be discouraged by any of that. I just feel like for those that will give themselves to the secret place and to loving God and His Word, I think there's going to be a great outpouring that's coming, brother. And I'm actually so excited Woo! for it. I'm so hopeful for what is coming. I think we're going to have churches. I, I've been bemoaning the state of the church for decades now where you go to the average church service and it's dead, right? I don't think it's going to be like that in this next generation. I think yeah. we're going to have services that are full of the presence and the power of the Lord because we're going to have a leadership that is devoted to holiness, right? Amen. Where holiness 
is the priority. We're still going to be faithful to do compassion ministry and evangelism and all that stuff, but not at the expense of holiness, right? Yes. Because we have to have God there. It's more important that we have God in our services than we have a thousand seekers. Okay, the presence of God is more important. Yeah. Okay, Amen. we want both. All right, For but sure. if we have to have a preference. The presence of God is more important. And I think that's what's coming. So I'm super hopeful for the future of the church, even though it looks like the church is in trouble to some degree. You're on fire, Dennis. <laughs> I'm feeling the spirit. I'm feeling the anointing, man. Come on, brother. Amen. I, I totally agree. I think there's a move of God that's coming on those that worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are going to be the next John the Baptist, Elijah's for this generation, preparing the way of the Lord. And, you know, Jesus, he first came on a donkey. But when Jesus comes his second time, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. And that time people will mourn because it's too late. And so it's either we mourn now, we repent of our sins, and we accept the peace now, or millions of people then will be mourning because they're spending eternity in hell. I think we got to live with this message with urgency. We got to live understanding there's no time to waste. Yeah. And we got to be filled with the Spirit as we carry this message with no compromise, never giving any room for the, for the enemy to... To change, we can't change this message. This message stays the same, regardless of culture. Yeah, I'm with you, brother. Well, Elijah, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me here and just to hear some of your heart. I'm definitely praying for you over in Korea. If you have to come Thank back, you, Dennis. Yeah, you're telling Thank me you, you might have for... to come. <laughs> yeah, so I have a visa situation, so I might be coming back. But my dad was saying maybe God was preparing you in Korea so that you could come back for revival in America. Come on. And I feel like, Dennis, if I come back, I want to be doing what you're doing. I want to be speaking the truth, leading communities in prayer and worship, and just really hoping for a pure church when Jesus returns. I'm praying that we would be part of that faithful, faithful church that did not compromise. Yeah, I'm with you, homie. Love you, brother. Thank you. Love you too, man. Thank you.